welcome to Bullpen Sessions, where you will learn the lessons from the athletes excelling at the highest level so you can take these same lessons and apply them to your sport, business, and life. My name is Andy Neary, and each week I sit down with current and former pro athletes and other professionals tied to the sports world where we dive into the mindset of those athletes excelling at the highest level teaching you lessons you can apply so you can have massive success in your sport, business, and life. So do me a favor, grab your glove, grab a ball, take the mound, because you are about to strike out those limiting beliefs that have been holding you back for oh so long. Here we go. All right. I am excited for this episode today. Welcome back to Bullpen Sessions. Today, I got Chris Noggle joining me. Now, if you don't know who Chris is... Chris has gone from pro snowboarding to becoming a money mogul. He, a mogul, excuse me. He has dedicated his life to being America's number one money mentor with a core belief that success is built not by the resources you have, but by how resourceful you can be. We're going to talk about that. His success and national acclaim have come in large part to what he's learned firsthand from seeking a better way to wealth creation and preservation than he learned growing up. Chris has built and owned 19 companies with his business being featured in Forbes, ABC, House Hunters, and his very own HGTV pilot in 2018. He is currently the founder of Money School and the Money Mentor for the Money Multiplier. His success also includes uh, managing tens of millions of dollars in assets in the financial services and advisory industry and in real estate transaction. As an innovator and visionary in wealth building and real estate, he empowers entrepreneurs, business owners, and real estate inventors with the knowledge of how money works. Chris is also a nationally recognized speaker, which I love author and podcast host. He has spoken to and taught over 10,000 Americans delivering the financial knowledge that fuels lasting freedom. Quite the resume, my friend. Welcome aboard, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me on. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk all things money today. We're going to talk about how you use social media content to grow your business like you have, which I absolutely love. But before we get there, people probably heard right away, wait, pro snowboarder? Let's uh, let's take a journey back a few years. Talk about your uh, growing up and, and how you landed in, in not only becoming a damn good pro uh, snowboarder, but a pro snowboarder. Yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting story. When I was a kid, you know, I didn't grow up in a, a family that had money. We were actually lower middle class and I had a skateboard ramps. Mom always, you know, made sure I had, you know, like the willingness to stay around the house. We lived out in the country. So I'd build skateboard ramps. And one day my friend comes over with this thing and it was uh, it was a snowboard and I'd heard of him, but I never owned one. And he's just like, oh, we got to start snowboarding and we're bouncing around on it in the garage. And I remember I went up the hill or up the street. We had this hill where we rode our dirt bikes and we built jumps. And that's all I knew of snowboarding is you just point it straight down the hill. You hit the jump, usually a crash and it hurts a little and you go back up and do it again. But then one day I got to you know go to a resort. Now, I'd never had exposure to resorts. They were kind of a fictitious thing in my mind because we just couldn't afford it. And the same friend says, hey, you know, I'll buy your ticket. Let's go to the let's go to Kissing Bridge. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. Now, the ride up to this before I went there was interesting, too, because I had a plastic snowboard. Uh, It was called a mogul monster way back in the day. And I I learned from Jack that you can't use those on the hill. I'm like, well, why not? It's a snowboard. He says, well, it doesn't have metal edges. So I had to then ask my mother. Luckily, it was like right before Christmas. I asked my mom for a snowboard for Christmas. And 
she couldn't afford one. So she got me this used look Burt Lamar. Now, anyone listening that's a snowboarder would understand what that is. We're dating ourselves now. And she got me these neon green waterproof pants and Sorel boots. And I'm, I'm all ready, right? I got all the gear now. I'd never had a snowboard with metal edges. I'm like, I got this. And we get there. And man, I just couldn't get it. It sucked. I remember the whole beginning part. I almost quit. I was soaked sitting in the lodge after my first grueling run. And I, I wasn't going to go back up. I was just like, ah, this just isn't for me. And Jack comes up to me and he says, hey, let's go up and do another one. I'm like, ah, Jack, I, I'm kind of wet. I'm not really feeling. He's like, listen, I know I didn't spend much time with the last run, but this time I'll actually guide you and show you what to do. And right then and there, it started to click. And that's how it started. But, you know, how do you take it from like the love of doing this thing, which we did, we we went as much as we could uh, to a pro. And how do you do it when you don't have money to actually travel to the mountains, when you don't have money to buy the lift tickets? Well, for me, it was a matter of just when you set your goals on something. And this is all I ever knew. You just dream something. And I, I watched all the VHS tapes of these pro riders, Craig Kelly and Teddy A. Hawkinson was at the early stages of his career. These are iconic pros. And I remember saying, I want that. But to get that, I had to do what everybody was unwilling to do. And we had a country club by my house. So every day after school, my mom would drive me to this country club, which was built in a ravine. And I, I found out that, you know, out of the, the, uh, the sand traps, on the hill, I could build jumps. I actually watched sledders doing it one time where they jump out of this. And I'm like, that's my jump. So I found a really good one and I built jumps and I practiced as many times as my mom would bring me there. I would practice my tricks that I learned on these VHS tapes. And then all of a sudden I realized, holy crap, I only have like an hour and a half, two hours most days to, to do this. So I wasn't able to get enough time because I was, wasn't in shape enough to run up the hill. So when I'd come home and the days I wasn't going to the hill or to the ravine, I should say, I ran up and down my backyard. No kidding. I literally put my Sorel boots on and I would run as fast as I could back and forth, up and down the backyard, trying to get in shape. So the next time I went to that ravine, I would get more runs and I could learn more tricks. So that's how it started. And then to pivot into the professional side, it goes just like this. I was going up to this Kissing Bridge Resort on a ski trip, like with my uh, my school, they had a ski club. And I remember one weekend I heard that there was gonna be Burton Pros at the new park that Kissing Bridge just built, which I had spent most of my time in. And I was like, oh my God, I've never met a pro. And I went there and I'm watching these two pros, Blair and Russ. And Blair is a really close friend of mine now and Shane, or not Blair and Russ, I'm sorry, Blair and Shane. And Shane and, and Blair were crushing it in this park and I'm watching them. And then I remember sitting there, I'm just this like young little kid observing this. And they said, you know, Blair actually just said, hey, come on up, hit this with us. So I walked up and now all of a sudden I'm riding with them and I'm like, you know, obviously just nervous. But in doing that, there was a scout there. And the scout road was for a company called Triple X and they, they liked what they saw. They gave me an amateur deal, which turned into a pro deal, which it, the rest is kind of history. But I guess the moral of the story is, you know, mimic what other people do. And I, I'd known no other pros from Buffalo ever make it. And these two guys did. So I followed their tracks. I watched what they did and I mimicked it. And then I also did what everybody was unwilling to do, including, and I didn't get into this story, including getting in my car every Friday that there was a contest because all the, all the contests back then, the big ones, you know, that would get you to the pro level were in Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire, which is a six to eight hour drive from where I live. Me and my friend, Ben, every Friday would load into one of our two cars, drive all night Friday, get to the resort about 6 a.m., sleep for a couple hours, register, ride and compete, 
sleep on somebody's floor or couch, get up the next day, compete again in another discipline, and then get back in the car and drive home. We did this for years. And yes, it's tough. Some days you're, you're driving, you got your hand out the window, trying to freeze your hand just to stay awake. And then obviously back to work on Monday. And luckily, uh, the other thing too, I don't mean to go along with this, but there's so many things that like I remember. Mindset's everything, no matter what you do, whether you're in financial services or you're trying to be a pro snowboarder. At that time, you know, I, at school, I had a, a good group of friends, but a lot of them would always try to talk me off of the the dream. They would try to say, why are you going to be a pro snowboarder? There's no way you can do that. And I remember I had to change the network of people that I surrounded myself with. Now I knew nothing about network equals your net worth, none of that stuff. I was a high school kid. And uh, I, I started working at this shop, a snowboard shop. They gave me a job and I got around people that thought the way that I did. They wanted the same things I did. And that's when things really escalated. And, and that's kind of how I did it, man. There was no secret. I just outworked everybody and I did what they were unwilling to do. A lot of them were like, oh, we don't live by the mountains, so we're never going to do that. I said, these guys did it. I'm just going to follow their path. Well, I mean, there's so many lessons. I was going to ask you the question, you know, thinking about what you learned as a snowboarder, how have you applied it to business? I think we just already got a master course. I mean, number one, you could have easily given up after one run. Right. And just said, ah, this isn't for me. I'm not going to do this. And the rest would have been history and your your path would have been completely different. In your bio, you talk about being resourceful. It's not about always having resources. It's easy to say, well, I don't live by the mountains. I can't do this. You went and found a freaking golf course in a sand trap to build your jumps to become a better snowboarder. And then when you realized, wait, I'm not in the right condition for this. You took it upon yourself to do the work in the backyard to run up and down and up and down. I mean, that is the mindset that I love, Chris. It's why this, uh, you know, I've just met you, but I guarantee that's why you are having the success you're having is it's the work you're putting in when no one else is watching. Correct. And Correct. I think it's easy for people. We're going to talk about this. I have a question. You ended up finding yourself on the X Games, right? Mm -hmm. And I think people would, would probably look at that and say, man, he's so lucky to be there. But luck found you because you were prepared. You put yourself in the position to let luck find you. And so let's Listen, talk about that. I'm just, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, because I had to say this, you know, you mentioned luck. I don't believe in luck. And, you know, I'm a, a huge reader and I read the book, The Richest Man in Babylon. And in that book, they talk about luck a lot. And they say that luck really doesn't exist but luck follows opportunity. So again, for what I was doing back then, I saw the opportunity. You know, I saw Blair and I saw Shane and I saw that they made it. That was the opportunity, that's all I needed to see. And I wanted it so bad that all I had to do is just chase that. So the, the luck, it, as some people would say, like you're right, oh my God, you're so lucky to be there. No, 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 there was no luck involved. Luck followed the opportunity. The opportunity was there the whole time. It just, you had to open your eyes and see it and then go after it. So. Yeah, that's just an interesting thing. I just never have believed in luck. I, I, I appreciate you saying that because when I was playing pro baseball, I had a lot of people would say that, right? Oh, you're so lucky, man. And it, it actually kind of pissed me off because I was like, you just totally <laughs> took you totally took away the, the work I've been putting in for the last decade. Like, no, it's not luck. I've busted my ass to actually earn that opportunity. So you're absolutely right. It's not luck. Now, I have a quick question, and this really isn't tied into today's podcast, but I got to believe there might be some snowboarding fans listening in. You got to compete in the early days of the X Games. So I will call it the pioneer days. We're talking the late 90s, right? Quickly give people a feel for what the X Games was like 
25 years ago compared to what we're seeing today, you know, at buttermilk and Aspen and, you know, it is rock and roll. And what was it like 25 years ago being part of X games? It was, it was first off, it was a huge honor to, to be invited. You got invited because of people you knew. Uh, it wasn't like today where there's a whole criteria of how you get invited back then. It was sort of like, who knows who? And I was in that snowboard series. I was ranked pretty high. So they get, they invited me, but what it was like is a big party, man. The X games largely was funded back then. I can't remember who the sponsors were. Let's just say that I can't remember if it was monster or red bull. I want to say monster maybe back in those days, but I could be wrong. And it was in their early years. So they threw a ton of money at this stuff and they threw big parties and all it was athlete only parties. You needed your criteria or your credentials. I'm sorry, not criteria, your credentials to get in. So it was just different. You know, today in X Games, it's it's definitely like, you know, it's an Olympic sport now. So X Games is now how you qualify or partly how you qualify for the Olympics. Back then, man, it was just a medal of honor and a paycheck, to be quite honest. I mean, and I rode in the Molson Canadian Snow Jam Tour around then, which was another really big series. It was only 12 riders and I was invited into it. And uh, that was just a big party, but the purses were way bigger back then, I think. So I don't know what they make today, but I've had this conversation with some big pros today. And I think we, you know, contest wise made more money back then for winning the contest than we make today. So how it would work is every, all the athletes knew each other and we were all, you know, bros and whoever won first paid for the drinks at the bar that night. That's just how it worked. And heck, I wasn't even, I shouldn't even say this on open, but I wasn't even old enough. I just had a fake ID. So that's what it was like. It was uh, a bunch of friends. Sure. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, it was a big contest. It was the first time that many of us had like big, you know, TV station type cameras on us. I mean, we're used to just having like the little handheld ones from our filmers that we rode around with, but now we had like, TV stations there filming. So it was a lot of pressure, but it was still, when you got up to the top of the hill, it was just like good old days, man. You just show up and everybody's talking about, oh, what, do, what are you going to do on the jumps? And we just had fun. Well, you know, it's, and by the way, you're okay saying what you're saying. Cause I believe it was, wasn't it Sean White early in his career at one of the X Games or maybe the Olympics got <laughs> yeah. busted for telling the, telling the world he was out partying when everybody knew yep. he was not of age. <laughs> But and, and and truth Whoops. be told, X X Games back then were actually in New England. They're not they weren't in Colorado. Yeah, Mount Snow. Yeah. So okay, so you now find yourself in the business world, are having a lot of success, and and you know we're not going to go into it a whole lot, but you actually spent some time on Wall Street, mm -hmm. and here you are today, a very successful entrepreneur. What I'm curious about, because we're going to be talking money and investing, and I love your phrase, find freedom from financial slavery. Um, what was life like on Wall Street compared to what you're doing today to help people invest for freedom? 180 degrees different. So Wall Street was a unique thing for me. I mean, you know, we just went through my whole career as a snowboarder. What we didn't talk about is I also started a clothing line out of mom's basement at 16 and then transitioned that into a chain of skateboard snowboard stores that my mother put her house on the line so that I could actually get the SBA back loan. And you know, I was uh, 17 turning 18 years old when I opened that first shop. It was 70,000 uh, bucks. The SBA loan and mom's house was on the line. So that whole time, you know, I was an entrepreneur from 16 on. I, I had a terrible experience uh, when I was young, 15, 16, working at a restaurant. They degraded me so badly that I was clinically depressed because of the way I was treated. And I remember saying, I'm never going to work for anyone again. 
and I, you know, I just went on to to do what I was doing, you know, with that. But what happened is when the dot com crash happened. Okay, I was just snowboarding professionally, running my shops. I had uh, got at that time three stores, three locations, highly leveraged. And when the planes hit the tower and the, the crash came, I didn't know what a recession was. Much like today, most people today are blind to what a recession or a depression even is. They don't even have a concept because it's been the longest bull run in history. So when this thing hit me, I literally had to get, I just, I had to get a job. I couldn't pay the bills. So I was going to deliver pizzas at Little Caesars, but they weren't hiring. And I put my resume out and the only, I don't want to call them idiots, but the only idiots that returned my calls for the resume, because I mean, I didn't have much on there. I was a entrepreneur and pro snowboarder, like, you know, not really qualification for many jobs, but I got calls from Wall Street companies and I ended up going out. First suit I ever put on, I had a zip up tie because I'd never tied a tie. And uh, I ended up taking the job thinking, oh, this will be a great little transition until I can get back in my stores. But I ended up loving it. And uh, I did really well. Uh, same, same principles. Remember, we talked about snowboarding. I did what everybody was unwilling to do. So let me just tell you this, because this is really important. I remember getting in this big Wall Street firm and you know, I'm in the bullpen. So in the middle where it's all loud, and, you know, the guys on the outside offices, we've all kind of known that if you've been in the industry, everybody that was somebody had the outside glass cube or glass offices. And we were in the bullpen in the middle, literally. <laughs> it's so funny to think back. I don't know how I did it, but back then it was just what we had. And uh, I remember watching these guys in the outside offices and they would get in later than, you know, they would get in like, I don't know, nine, sometimes 10 o'clock. They would leave for lunch most days and then they would be gone at four o'clock, maybe five, like the bell ring and they're out, man. So I sat there and I'm saying, you know what? I want what they have. And if they're getting in late, I'm going to get here earlier. So I got in at 7 a.m. They left for lunch. I worked through lunch. And during lunch is when I like did a lot of the things. I made a lot of calls during lunch because I realized people work all the other times and then they're they're either home or able to take a call during lunch. So I got a lot of people on the phone that normally wouldn't have answered. And then everybody would leave at four or five. I would stay till seven, sometimes eight o'clock. There'd be nobody but the janitor. I literally got to know the freaking janitor. I bet you these other guys didn't even know the janitor's name. And I just got to know the dude. Like he was the only one there I could talk to. So I spent those hours in the evening, in the early years, dialing. And I, I got a hold of a lot of people and I would book calls. And instead of just trying to close them, I was more relationship. Like that whole close on the phone thing, like some of the guys were, that we trained to do, just didn't resonate with me. So I would literally set up times to go out and meet these people because I wanted to learn who's, who is this person on, on the other end of this call. So I'd meet them at their kitchen table, but it was always evening appointments. Now, you know, to be fair, you know, this is when I was in my early 20s. I was a pro snowboarder. So girls at that time were not something that I looked at as long term, like having a girlfriend any more than maybe a week to a month. That was forbidden in my world, like in my mind, because that was a distraction to what I was trying to accomplish. So never had girls that distracted me. You know, I'd go out on dates and stuff and had fun as a pro snowboarder. But outside of that, like I didn't have that distraction. So I just worked. And I became one of the top advisors. I mean, it was a few short years. I was the number one new org rep, which new org meaning like I'm the new guy uh, in the first year. So I was number one there. And then I just was competitive. So they always had contests, you know, like, hey, all the guys in this new org or the guys in this category, like there was always contests and awards you could win. And man, I always just wanted to earn them. So I would, I would literally reverse engineer it. If I needed five grand a month to win this award, I would reverse engineer. How do I do that? And I did it. And I became a top advisor, making a ton of money, you know, before 2008, when I pretty much lost it all in the Great Recession, because I just 
got greedy just like everybody today. I was just, I was all in. I thought the train was never going to stop. I thought it was going to keep on pushing. And all of a sudden, boom, you know, and that was uh, what took it away. But what happened, what's the difference between then and now? Everything. You see, everything I was taught as an advisor and, you know, at the end of my career, I, I worked with an RAA, had my own practice. I served, you know, as a fee-based advisor managing large institutional portfolios. So I got to see a lot of the things on the inside, uh, things that most advisors will never see. I, I got to learn about the dark pools and learn, you know, and talk to the traders there. And I saw a lot of things that really scared me, things that made no sense to me as to why they operated like they did. And when I learned why they did it, I'm like, well, that's not to the best interest of the client. So when I retired in 18, I sold my practice and it wasn't because, you know, a lot of people would give me a lot of credit and say, oh my God, you left the industry, which is hard to do. And you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars and you literally don't have to work that hard because I had 16 years in at that point, I had a hell of a book and, you know, it was just all AUM. So I got a check every month. And the day when I decided it, here's how it happened. I was heavy in real estate. Me and my wife were flipping a lot of houses back then. And I remember all the OBAs, the outside business activities, the broker and, and the company I was with didn't want to approve them, but they did because I was such a high producer. And then I remember I told them, I because I got nervous, I was working on a TV show with HGTV. And I told them this and they're like, oh yeah, no big deal. Just put it down as an OBA. They approved that as, as a preliminary show. Then I got the show approved. And I went to them again, same compliance officer. And I said, hey, listen, we got approved for the TV show. I just want to make sure that this is going to be OK under the OBA. I was very compliant advisor, which I would have made way more money if I wasn't as compliant as I was. But I said that to her and I remember her telling me these words. She says to me, you have to make a decision. You're either going to be a TV show star or you're going to be an advisor. I'm like, wow. OK, thank you. It was nice knowing you. And that was it, man. At that point. I literally went to the guy sitting next to me in the office right over. I said, hey, we've talked about this, but would you seriously be interested in buying my book in my practice? And he says, 100%. Like that, I made the switch in my mind and I left Wall Street forever. And people, this is the second time I'd changed. I had only had two companies I worked for during my whole career. The first time when I left was a large uh, giant insurance company in New York City. And I, I was a big dog there. And I remember I just cold turkey left because I didn't want to be with a captive company where I didn't own my book. And everybody told me I was crazy. You're leaving a pension. You're leaving this giant, you know, residual payment that you get. And I said, I don't care. I don't own this. It's it's not something that's sustainable. Someday when I want to, you know, leave this, like, what do I have? A pension? No. So I, I went independent. And then when I left the independent world, they all said I was absolutely crazy. And I said, you know what? What is this? What is uh, he saying? The movie stupid is as stupid does. It was an easy decision. It wasn't in line with my core dream and values at that time. Well, you know, it's funny. Your story is very similar to mine from the standpoint of I had been in the insurance, health insurance industry for 15, 16 years. And I saw the opportunity to build a personal brand because I knew it would help me grow my business and in turn help my agency that I was working for grow their business, right? Because if I'm selling, they're winning. And I'll never forget that day that I launched my website <laughs> and I got a call from the CEO of the, the company saying, what the hell are you doing? What's this? And that second I knew that what I really wanted to do wasn't going to align with what they wanted because all they wanted me to do was sell the logo. I said, I got to go do something else. And that was the day I made the decision to go out on my own. 
because I knew that I wasn't going to move away from growing my personal brand because it allowed me to be me, but I couldn't work somewhere where I was told to just keep selling our logo and just be one of our producers. And I'm like, I can't do that. Keyword selling, selling, selling. That's all it was, you know, and it's, 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 I look back at that and I'm, I had the rosy colored glasses on. I'm sure you did too. I mean, we, they paid us really well mm-hmm. to just sell their products. And we thought we were always doing this to, to benefit the, the client. I think in our minds, in our hearts, we were, we, we thought we were truly helping our clients with a lot of the products that we were selling. I look back and knowing those products now from the outside and I say that wasn't helping the client. It was helping me. It was helping the brokerage. It was helping, you know, the firm, but it, it really wasn't fulfilling the client's needs. I just was so trained because I was a very good salesperson. So trained to sell these products that they, they literally, I mean, wall street's perfect for this. They molded us into exactly what they wanted. And unless you get out of the world, you'll never know that you'll never, you'll, you'll just be like, ah, no, they don't. Yes, they do. I was the perfect, perfect like machine for these wall street firms. I was very, I was very compliant. Like I was a good student. And I did everything they told me to do very well. And uh, I gave up a lot of my life for that. And hey, listen, I don't regret it, but I definitely look back saying, holy crap, I could have helped a lot more people solve a lot more problems if I knew what I know today back then. Yeah, absolutely. And and where I want to go with this now is um, branding, personal branding, using social media content to grow your business, because that's something, you know, I've observed of you from afar and I'm absolutely fascinated and blown away with what you've been able to do from a content standpoint. But before we get there, let's let's talk about your business today so people can get a, a view of what sure. you're doing. You know, you you've got the money multiplier. You've got, you know, you consider yourself a money mentor, America's number one money mentor. You've got the money school. For the people listening in who don't know a lot about that, just give them a feel for what you're doing today. What is the money multiplier, the money school? What are you guys doing to help the average investor create wealth? It's very simple. When people ask me what you do, I say we solve people's money problems. And we do that by showing people how to take back control of their money. We do not manage people's money at all. You can't pay me enough money to manage anyone's money. But what we do is we teach people how to be a good steward of their own finances. We teach people very simple. And you might think that's uh, you know counter uh, a swear word to what I'm going to say next, but very simple principles that the wealthy Now, when I say wealthy, you can look at it any which way, but multimillionaires and billionaires use to manage their money or their family offices use. So what I did is because of real estate, I had the ability to get around some very high profile people. I mean, people worth hundreds of millions and billions. And, you know, I always thought, okay, well, I'm an advisor, so I'm going to be able to jive with these guys. But when I started talking to them about money, the conversations were very different than what I thought they were. I thought they were going to say, oh, we have you know, this stock and that stock. And they had some stocks, but not much. You know, and then I thought they, they'd have all these products and they had none of them. They did something completely different than everything I'd been taught to do. So what we do today with the money multiplier, money multiplier is very specific. It's like, you know, if you were looking at doctors, we the money multiplier, we are heart surgeons of the financial world. All we teach and all we do for clients at the money multiplier is privatized banking, i.e. the infinite banking concept, which is the concept and the process that we use to teach people how to be their own banks. And we do that with a product that's been around forever. And as soon as I say it, everybody's gonna be like, oh my God, that doesn't work that way. That's what I said, but it is whole life insurance. It is the only machine that we use, nothing else. 
We don't sell life insurance. We don't sell term insurance. We don't sell investments. We design and engineer whole life products, okay, with special companies to work as a banking instrument. Now, this is nothing new. It's been being done like this for hundreds of years. It was created by the, the you know, JPs, the Morgans, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds. It could go on for days. It's used by all the wealthy up to today. And I've learned this. That's how Walt Disney built his is how Walt Disney anyway. built Disney World, isn't it? Walt Disney and Ray Kroc and Pampered Chef, Doris Christopher started hers. And you know, Warren Buffett, although uses it in a very different capacity, but he uses investment grade insurance contracts. Same concept of what we do today. So, But it's not a normal whole life. We take a normal whole life from a mutually owned company and we design it so that it's, it's all front heavy. So in other words, the cash value can be used almost like your savings account. Okay, so maybe not 100% the first couple of years, but after that, you, you have uninterrupted compound interest is the core reason we use it. And it allows people to use their money while still saving their money and never ever stop earning interest and dividends on every penny of money that they put in it. It's, it's, a merit. it's literally like the most miraculous product ever created if you use it right. Now, most people just think of whole life and what Dave Ramsey says of it is a terrible, expensive life insurance plan. And I, I, I have to wholeheartedly agree. Whole life is very expensive if you just buy a, a whole life from your broke ass brother-in-law or the insurance store down the street, but it, it fits a need, but we're not doing that. We're, we're designing it differently. And to, for people to understand that they'd have to watch one of my videos or, you know, really look into Boley and Coley to see how banks and corporations use it. But that's what the money multiplier is. Money school is very simple. Remember back to that core phrase. We solve people's money problems by putting them back in control of their money. The money school is simply education. And the funniest thing about the money school is people are like, well, everything you guys do is free. How do you even make money? This is one of the biggest things I've learned. And I learned it while in Wall Street, but never applied it. And, and I applied it almost as like a test because I, I didn't think it would work. And a mentor of mine once told me, he said, give your best stuff away for free. So what we created money school around is at first we were trying to charge for all these courses and nothing ever worked. So then one day I'm just like, well, let's just give it all away for free. Let's do a whole bunch of marketing on social, on Facebook primarily back then. And let's give all these courses that we used to charge 500 to $1,000. Let's give them away for free. And when we started doing that, what we found is a lot of people started getting around what we call the campfire. They wanted more information. We'd already given them stuff for free, but people are only going to consume what they want. And they wanted to hear it from the source. So we basically then started creating free trainings. And I did this because Russell Brunson, um, you know, used to do this. He did a webinar and it's in his book. He did a webinar every single week. And in the beginning, no one showed up. Same thing here. Years ago, I started a webinar and I started doing it every Wednesday at one o'clock. I still do it today, but hundreds of people every single week show up and it's all free. So people are always like, well, how the heck do you make money? I make money three, four and five layers deep, but I don't make any money unless somebody chooses that they want us to help them solve their problem. We don't sell anything. We, we basically literally we're trained, all my, my salespeople are trained not to sell. We make people ask us to help them because when somebody asks for something, they're serious. When somebody sold something, eh, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. So that's what our companies do. We teach people the secrets of the wealthy and we teach them how to take back control of their money, which is the complete opposite of everything I was taught. So before we get there, because that you just spoke to my heart, we're sitting, you and I are having a conversation on November 8th, 2021. We're still in the pandemic crisis, whatever you want to call it. And I think a lot of people, Chris, have this view that, oh, great, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But I'd love your perspective. Um, 
Do you see this as a gap that's being created or is this also one of the greatest opportunities for people to leverage if they make the right decisions? What's well, interesting is both. Do I see it as a gap that's creating or a gap that's always been there? 100%. The wealthy and the rich, if you want to lump them in, I, I view them as two separate things because wealth and rich are two different things. Rich is the next poor. Wealth is forever. Okay. I see them getting richer and wealthier, and I don't see them working any harder to do that. So a lot of people, when you hear that, they're thinking, oh, they're stealing from us. They're taking from us. The wealthy are the, the evil ones. So that's because you're conditioned that way from the media. They want you to believe that when the same ones that are trying to get you to believe that the wealthy are evil are the wealthy, just trying to create that because what they're really doing today is destroying the middle class. If you can't see that, you're, you're, you're literally, you know, you ever see the matrix, remember the red mm -hmm. pill, blue pill, you know, the rest of the story, you are blind to what's going on, but there is a very widening gap, but it is not being created because the wealthy are greedy. Now, I'm not going to say some of them aren't. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. But that's not that's not why this gap is being created. This gap is being created because in history, if you study history, other countries, that's what they've done. They eliminate the middle class. So you have a poor and a wealthy. That's it. You don't have the middle class, which is what makes the backbone of this country. So that's being eliminated. And the second part of your question is, is this the biggest opportunity of a lifetime? You bet your sweet ass it is. Because what is about to happen, and most people are blind to this because you know, we're in a long bull run. No one's even seen a recession or most of the millennials don't even remember or know anything about a recession. There's one, there's a storm coming and it's clear as day. Like I, I can't, when people tell me that that's not the case, I literally have to question whether they're actually living in the same world I am, because you cannot that you cannot deny that things are messed up right now. You can't deny that this hockey stick on the stock market and the hockey stick in the real estate market and the hockey stick in the crypto market are all real because they're not. The government just printed what would they print another one point eight trillion? Ah, just a couple more bucks. They're going to pump through the economy. Of course, everything's in a bubble. The same thing happened in 1926 to 29. The same thing happened in every other boom and bust cycle, except for this one keeps getting kicked because the government's got an unlimited printing press called modern monetary theory economics. So where's the opportunity? Well, the opportunity comes when everything crashes down. Of course, the opportunity is not today. Today is you're just treading water. You feel like you're making money. You feel like you're doing well because it's an illusion. And it really is. It's like walking into one of those mazes that are all glass. You know, it's just an illusion. It's not real. But when this whole thing crashes, it will create single handedly the largest opportunity in our lifetimes. And the problem is, is too many people will not be ready for it because they are wrapped up and caught up in this FOMO, this fear of missing out, this thing like I got to get what I can get today. I got to I got to go all in. I got to buy these crap coins and and I got to buy this and I got to buy that. Oh, my God, Tesla's going up. I should buy that. Like. Listen, I'm not saying that those aren't good companies to invest in. I'm just saying you are buying high. And Warren Buffett, just, just follow that dude. Like, he's not dumb. He's been around a while. But the problem is, is his wealth was created over time, a lot of time. And he says, he says it's simple. Buy low, sell high, and don't lose money. How many people do you know right now, for any of your audience, that are actually selling today? Well, me, I'm completely out of the market. My money's sitting in privatized banking policies and treasury bonds. Oh, how boring, right? Your advisor would more than likely tell you that treasury bonds are the worst place to put money. But for some reason, I feel like they forgot what they learned in the Series 7 book about the inverse relationship to interest rates because there lies a massive opportunity to make some quick money and remain safe during this weird time. But when it all falls apart, 
are we not going to have the ability to buy everything on a big sale, right? 30, 40, 50, 60%. But you got to believe that that's coming. And then the hardest part is, and it's hard for me, don't get, let me get you wrong. Patience, mm. hard to wait, but you got to. Well, and you referenced Warren Buffett. He's also the man known to say for every 100 opportunities he gets, he says no to 99 of them. That's the opposite of what I would define as FOMO, right? And, you know, I think it goes back to, Chris, when I look at your athletic career, where you've had success in, in business on Wall Street, it's not the the wealth and the rich are the, the people who, who have the wealth are greedy and are taking it from everybody else. They're just being more resourceful. They just Absolutely. have the right mindset. Right. They just have oh the right goodness. mindset. And by the way, the last one we haven't talked about, which has defined your career, they have just outworked your ass. Yeah, and, and they understand some simple laws of wealth. Uh, you know, the laws of wealth that go back to, you know, before Christ. I mean, the laws to building wealth and maintaining and keeping wealth. That's the hard part, keeping it. Making money, easy today. Keeping it, difficult. The laws are identical. And until people start abiding by the laws, which are very simple when you hear them, very complex when you try to apply them that's what makes the difference and and you know when you look at someone like warren buffett he understands those laws and he also understands like what the the book the one thing mentions you know learn how to say no so that you can say yes to the right thing and yeah so you know the simple laws of how wealth works are, are step number one working hard and outworking everybody else doing i always say do what everybody else is unwilling to do if your friends are sitting around watching the football game we we're talking about the bills game i'm from buffalo new york of course i like the bills but yesterday i chose to do things that were you know maybe revenue producing or things that were more productive than sitting in front of the tv watching or drinking beer with my buddies like i just don't do that but most of my friends do and i'm not faulting them for that listen everybody's got their own thing that they enjoy for me i've got a finite amount of time on this earth. And I understand one of the key laws, and that is I have to help a lot of people solve a lot of problems if I'm ever gonna solve my own problems. And if anyone wants the number one way that they're gonna get wealthy, that's it, give more. It sounds counterproductive, sounds stupid, most people don't believe it. You want wealth, start there, start giving more. Start helping more people. Start making more people smile. Stop thinking me, 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 Mike, I gotta get a new car, I gotta get the fancier house, I gotta do that. Help enough people and you'll have all those things because the universe will give them to you because that's how it works. It's how it's worked for every multimillionaire and billionaire. They had to give. Now, you know, and a lot of people like they look at the bad ones, you know, the ones that the media puts up on a pedestal and they say, oh, that guy didn't help people. I bet you he did somewhere along the way and then something happened. And he went down the wrong path. And listen, there's evil all around us and you can choose your path, whether, you know, be good or be a bad person. And wealth works the same thing. Money is just a tool. So you can use money as a bad thing or you can use it as good things. I just prefer to surround myself with people that use it. For good well, and life is choices. You know, when people ask me what I believe allow me to play professional baseball, I, I keep it really simple. It's because I put all the work in when no one is watching that nobody else was willing to do. And to your point, your choice to sit on the couch on a Saturday and watch college football all day and drink, that's a choice. That's great. But just know the people who are building wealth may be busting their ass on that Saturday when you choose to do nothing. And so Amen. it's all choices. That's what life's about. And I want to wrap this up with a topic that I know is near and dear to your, your heart and my heart is you talk about giving and you give a lot through your social media content. And, you know, for me, it started three, four years ago, Chris. I found this guy on YouTube by the name of Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, actually saw him keynote speak at an event. That was the first time I saw him. 
And I'm like, man, who the hell is this guy? And I started diving in, started watching YouTube videos every single morning of him. I think I have now watched every video he's ever created, which is almost impossible. Um, and that's when I started diving into content. And I realized that if I could become a media company, that my business would inherently grow. And I want you to go into start, start by going into a topic. You said it earlier, giving. He said something to me on a video that just stuck with me a couple years ago. When you give more than anybody else, it will, and you do it all for free, you will literally guilt people into doing business with you. Talk about that. Talk about the importance of giving in content and what social media content has meant to your business. Well, I love that you mentioned Gary because the way he thinks and the way I think I got it, I don't know Gary, but I got to believe that we are on the exact same wavelength because that's the one thing I learned. And, you know, again, I didn't come from this world. I used to be very greedy. I used to do everything for the, the fancier Audi, the bigger house, like in Wall Street. That's what we, it's what I did. And, and every time the money was stripped from me. And, you know, what I do today with social media. Now, social media, uh, I've always seen the power of it, but I've never fully understood it until recently. And social media to me is the one outlet. It's the pivot that's allowed me to help more people and get exposure to more people. But see, social media is rough. I think the average person in a day sees 10,000 ads and I might have it off a little by now, but just imagine if, if somebody sees 10,000 ads a day, how do you stand out? Well, there's a lot more to social media than, than just posting ads. That's where it started for everybody. I used to just do Facebook lives twice a week and I, built a habit. I mean, a lot of what I do today is habit. I, I get down on my knees and I say a prayer every morning, habit. I, I do uh, recordings every single week on specific days at times, habit. You develop these habits and these patterns in your life and it just becomes easy. So I started with Facebook Lives, but then Facebook started throttling. So then I learned about Instagram. My wife was huge on Instagram because she's younger than I am. She's like, this is the future. I'm like, ah, no, it's not. Facebook is. Then all of a sudden Instagram was. So I had to learn that platform. But every single time when I learned about social media, I learned what you have to put on social media is not just nonsense. There's plenty of nonsense. But remember, 10,000 ads a day people view. And if you want to get through to them, you better be giving them your best stuff. Something that literally in 60 seconds or on TikTok, maybe, you know, 30 seconds, that literally grabs them or, or as I like to say, punches them in the face and says, you know what, maybe I should watch more of this. And the second thing you got to realize is get out of that mindset that this happens quick. I've been at this game for a long time and in, in devouring social media. Like I may, like I used to sit all, all day long, I used to be on the phone talking to clients. And there was a day where I had to make the decision that I, I wanted to grow the business even to another level. And that required me stopping with the calls, building a sales team and focusing all of my time. Now imagine having a full-time job where all you do all week long is create content through videos like this or podcast or StreamYard or just sitting in front of a camera. Imagine if that was your job. Well, that is my job. And that is what I do. And I have one sole goal, period. When I, every video I do is can I help one person change their financial future? See, if you think, oh, I want to help a million people, which is my big goal, you have to start with one. So every video I create, I'm thinking, will this video help one person solve a problem. And I don't care if the video is 30 seconds or if it's YouTube long form, 15 to 17 minutes, that video better do its job and solve a problem. And that's what I do. I've just changed from working in my business to now working on it and actually understanding that my role has changed. Very difficult to do. 
And now that's all I do is create content. And I have a rockstar team, which has taken me God damn near a decade to build because I used to hire everything out. And I found that nobody cares more about your stuff than you do. So I had to hire it. I just brought and created my own team around what I learned and the mistakes I learned by failing hiring other companies. Same thing with your money. Like how many times do people need to fail by hiring somebody else to be in control of their money until they then decide to take control of their money? That's well, I have like. these conversations all the time with the advisors and agencies that I coach, you know, to your point, number one, you got to be patient, right? I think in the financial industry and insurance, everybody has this um, goal of quick wins. You know, if we do this webinar, if we do this video, how many sales are we going to get out of it? Well, that's not how it happens anymore. But all. he or she, he or she who educates the most wins the most. I am a firm believer in that. And, you know, the other thing is holding back your best stuff. I hear advisors say that all the time. Well, I'm not going to share the best stuff until I get hired. Well, great. You're not getting hired because the consumer is smarter than he or she's ever been. And they're not settling for hiring you until you have educated them enough for them to trust you, which requires a ton of education. So here's my question for you, Chris. You've got a team now. So you can pump out content for days, all day, but it's taken you a decade. What about the person sitting and listening who is just getting started? You know, a lot of advisors I coach, right? They know they finally need to get their ass on LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever. How do they get started? Stop procrastinating for crying all out. Stop thinking about what you got to do and how it's going to work and all this stuff. Just turn your darn phone on and film a video about something you think is incredibly valuable, about something that's in the news that you know people are talking about. How about inflation? How about the $1.8 trillion infrastructure bill? How is that going imp to impact people? And then how are you solving the problem? Don't sell. Never like social media today is different than it was a decade ago, different than it was 10 years ago, different than it was last year. If you're selling on social media, you're already losing and you don't even know it. You just have to go out there and you literally just need to give people solutions to common everyday problems and stop freaking procrastinating, trying to think you need to figure something out. How difficult is it to grab your phone, go to Instagram, click on stories, and click the button and hold it and talk. Oh, I'm, I'm too nervous about that. Nervous about what? Have somebody else do it while you're talking. Get on the phone with one of your clients about a severe topic. Maybe you got an angry client. They're mad about you know something that just happened. Have somebody point the camera at you when you're solving that client's problem. Think about that. Like, How many people would want to see that? I want to see that. That's real. It's not fake. It's not salesy. It's just you dealing with an angry client and you're solving the problem. Everybody out there wants to see that. So start creating content. You don't need a team. You don't need professional videographers. You literally need to start going out there and doing what you know how to do because every one of us have a special gift to solve people's problems. So put it on camera. And then there's compliance, which I can't really tell you how to do that. I mean, that's a whole different world, but just get the guidelines for compliance. If you're in the world, in the advisory world, find out what you can and can't do. And I bet you they just don't want you selling things. They don't want you using their company name and they don't want you talking about a product. Great. You should not be doing any of those anyway. Just talk about concepts and solutions to common everyday problems and tell people how to do it. I yeah. Mean, and I think, oh, I think the, so lesson, easy. the lesson there, Chris, too, is I hear it all the time. I tell people, some of the most boring and monotonous content in your daily life that you think is not post worthy is the stuff you should be posting mm -hmm. because people are, everybody's going through it. It gives people a chance to get to know you and like you. 
And I am a huge believer, Chris, whether it is just flat out educational content you're providing or case studies and everything else you're doing, it's top of mind awareness. They see you the most, guess who they're going to remember first. But it doesn't start that way. And, you know, I remember in the beginning, all those webinars I did, no, you know, I would have one or two people show up. Yeah. Most people would have never continued. If I hadn't read Russell's book where he told me that that was going to happen, I'm like, oh, okay, this is normal. One person showed up. I would, I literally had to be of the mindset that I would do that webinar if no one showed up. And in my mind, I'm a good visualizer, right? I've always been a visualizer and I would pretend there's thousands of people. I learned how to speak that way. I have a, a uh, event center out here and I'd have 100 empty seats and I would stand up on the stage and I would practice my speech as if there was 100 people sitting there, literally to the point where I would go up to chairs and call out an invisible person's name. They weren't there, but you got to visualize it first. You got to first dream it, then you got to believe it, and then you'll achieve it. And that's Napoleon Hill. Well, Chris, let's go all the way back to your snowboarding career, man. I mean, think about that. If you would have done one webinar and one person showed up and you quit, just like you went down that first run and quit, what would you, you wouldn't have had any success. And number two, you standing on stage in a empty event center, literally picturing yourself talking to people, literally having conversations with people that don't exist in that room. That's putting in the work when no one's watching. Right. This is what we've been saying over and over and over again, whether it's snowboarding wall street, running your company today and creating content, got to be resourceful and just put the freaking work in. And it's not going to happen overnight. Have patience and be consistent. And so, Chris, I want to wrap it up here, man. This was extremely valuable. Um, if somebody's listening in and like, okay, we need this dude's energy, whether it's to learn more about the money multiplier, to learn more about how you could help them with whole life insurance or hire you to speak, what are the best ways to get in touch with you? very easy. Just go to chrisnoggle.com. I think it's scrolling at the bottom or you just, you know, my name.com. And there's tons of videos on there. Like I said, everything's free. I've written three books. Fourth is on the way. You can get my books for free or, you know, YouTube's great. Any social media, I answer all my social media. It's at the Chris Noggle. So those are the best way to reach out. Awesome. And I absolutely failed, Chris, to announce during this podcast that you also have the Real Estate Money School podcast. <laughs> I actually have well. two shows. Yeah, I got the Real Estate Money School podcast, and I got a new celebrity show called The Chris Noggle Show, which we just bring on celebrities, uh, which awesome. has been taken off. That's awesome. Well, that's great, man. Um, you are a media company that happens to sell investing advice, and that's, I think, how anybody grows a business today. No matter what you sell, you should become a media company first create massive amounts of content. And at the end of the day, your bottom line is going to benefit. So Chris, I want to thank you one more time for coming on. It was, uh, it was awesome, man. I, I got to talk about things I never have. Thank you. Well, and for those listening in, uh, model yourself after Chris, you are the second uh, interview I've had in a row that's brought up the book, Richest Man in Babylon. So I think there's a theme, guys. You need to go get that book if you haven't read that. It's a, it's a quick read, but one of the best reads you will ever have. And guys, I'll say it and I say it all the time. When you get that clarity, you mix it with confidence, massive action happens. And when massive action happens, massive success follows. So go make it happen today. Chris, thank you. Everybody else, go kick some ass today. 
Thank you for listening into this week's episode. And if you know of any other high achievers like yourself that you think would benefit from this episode, please do me a favor. Please share this with them. You would help me go a long way in sharing this message, getting this message out to as many people as possible. I'd be forever grateful. And if you really found benefit from today's episode, do me a favor, go subscribe to the podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a great review. It always helps to make sure that this podcast is getting in front of as many ears and eyeballs as possible. Thank you.